Hi, my name's Mark Kelly and I'm part of the leadership at City Church Leeds and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. You join us as we're journeying through the Gospel of Matthew and trying to understand what it really means to live in the Kingdom of God. For more information, other resources and media, please visit our website, citychurchleads.net. Search for us on Facebook or catch us on Twitter at cc underscore leads. We look forward to connecting with you. Esther, could you just describe, read out some of these things that are on here? So this is lovely Esther. Let's please just welcome (laughs) lovely Esther. Um, okay, what have we got? Um, well, Jess has just come down and given, given me this fantastic picture of a CEO of a company with his money pile. Um, then we've got another cra- we've got a couple of crowns. We've got a fantastic architectural um, diagram of the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben. Credit to whoever did that. That's fantastic. Someone's written here, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power, which was a quote from Abraham Lincoln. And Neve has drawn a picture of a royal robe and a crown as well. Um, what else have we got? I wrote that power is ultimate and it's where the book stops. Someone else has written godly order delegated by heaven. Um, we have the, the wig of a judge here. Someone else has written Jesus is perfect authority. If authority is perfect, we have no choice but to bow before it. Um, it, it shows authority and leadership by servanthood. All earthly authorities must follow this example. Oh, this is cool. Number one, um, making just decisions. Submission, obedience, respecting, and then another picture of a throne, accountable, someone's simply written, God. Great. Good stuff. Um, the kids are taking their pictures away to carry on doing them, I've noticed. Now, so these are all, these are amazing. Thank you so much for kind of doing this. These are some wonderful examples of rule and authority and what it kind of means to, to kind of people. But I wonder whether um, a bunch of you... Uh, can come forward and remove those that doesn't apply to Jesus. So Esther, if you could come to the front and just see which ones they're removing. We've got a couple of um, political ones that have been removed. So we've got um, a political comment about David Cameron and the Downing Street disaster. Jess's picture of the CEO is gone. Uh, the picture of Big Ben and Parliament's gone. Some picture of some a picture of some diamonds is gone. I think this is a hammer that's gone as well. Okay, let's, let's just round this up, guys. you want to quickly pick any more? Do you think the rest are relevant? Do you think the rest apply to King Jesus? Okay, so we've got some, we've got some left. You can, stop, you can stop looking now, guys. So maybe when we finish today, just come forward and have a look and see what's left. Because what's left are things that, in your mind, represent your relationship with King Jesus, to your relationship with his rule, and his authority. Because we're beginning our new series today. Our new series is going to be based around the book of Matthew. And it's going to be the theme of that is kingdom. His kingdom. His kingship. And we did kingdom a few years ago. We did a whole series for nearly half a year or so on kingdom. So a lot of you should be quite up on what kingdom is. The kind of nuances around it. What it means. What heavenly kingdom is. But we're going to base this around Matthew. And we can see what we can pull out. You know, sometimes the fatherhood of God can be difficult for those who have had bad human fathers. That relationship, we can begin to... It can be awkward, it can be hard. And that's why what I wanted you to do this was to try and bring out ideas of authority, true authority, true leadership, true kingship, 
true fatherhood in Jesus. And I hope that over the next seven weeks, as we work through Matthew, we'll learn more about the real authority and kingship of Jesus and about how having him as our Savior and Lord is the best place to be. Father God, I pray right now that for hearts and minds to be open as we work through Matthew. And that, Father, we can fully begin to appreciate what it means to receive your Son as our King. Father, help us through your Spirit understand what your Word is saying to us so that we can have a greater revelation of having Him as our Lord and our Saviour. So, Father, we submit today and the next six weeks to you as we journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Amen. So, I think if we're going to go through Matthew, let's read Matthew. Okay, I'm going to read um, from Matthew 1. I'm going to read from verse 18, and I'll explain why in a little while. So, Matthew 1, verse 18. And then I'm going to read another section of Matthew after that. The birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. And while he was trying to figure a way out, he had a dream. God's angel spoke in the dream. Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant. She will, give birth, uh, she will bring a son to birth. And when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves. Because he will save people from their sins. This would bring the prophet's embryonic sermon to full term. Watch for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel. Hebrew 4. God is with us. Then Joseph woke up. He did exactly what God's angel commanded in the dream. He married Mary. But he did, he did not consummate the marriage until she had a baby. But he named the baby Jesus. Let's skip ahead now to Matthew 21. I'm going to read through verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from the message translation. When they're near Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethphage or something, on Mount Olives, Jesus sent two disciples with these instructions. Go over to the village across from you. You'll find a donkey tethered there, her colt with her. Untie her and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, say, the master needs them. He will send them with you. This is the full story of what was sketched early by the prophet. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king's on his way, poised and ready and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, Foal of a pack animal. The disciples did, went and did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They led the donkey and colt out, laid some of their clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving him a royal welcome. Others cut branches from trees and threw them down as a welcome mat. Crowds went ahead and crowds followed all of them calling out, Hosanna to David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
And as he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Can you imagine that? The whole city was shaken. Unnerved, people were asking, what is going on here? Who is this? The parade crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. So I said, I didn't read from the beginning of Matthew 1. For those of you who have read Matthew, you'll probably understand why. It'll take a little while. But I want to stress that having that section there in Matthew 1 is really important. Matthew wrote it because it was vital to connect the Jewish people's past with their present and through Jesus, their future. At the end of that genealogy, which is the the first number of of verses within chapter 1, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Matthew writes that there are 14 generations between Adam and King David and 14 between King David and Jesus. And what's interesting that in biblical terms, the meaning of the number 14 is deliverance and salvation. The book of Matthew is the gospel that is probably most concerned with the king and the kingdom. And in fact, Matthew mentions kingdom twice as often as the other gospels. It's probably the most Jewish in its content and its focus. So aside from this genealogy, you also find um, the use of the term kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God that you'll find elsewhere in the New Testament. And you've got to understand that Matthew was speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And they placed restrictions on the use of the name of God. So Matthew simply writes heaven instead. There's no difference to what he's referring to. Kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God and vice versa. So with this in mind, we've got to get some understanding, I think, of Jewish history. And what does it have to say about kings and kingdoms and God? Also, we need to ask questions of Jesus as we read through the Gospels. What kind of king is this? What kind of authority is he exercising? If, if you'd have lived in Jesus' time, would you, would you have followed him as king? I mean, it must have been pretty cool, mustn't it, to have seen him perform all those healings and, and miracles. And you'd have probably been really attracted to him because of that. I know I would have done. Yet, if you were there and you were part of this Jewish audience, would you have accepted this kingship that he was bringing? Looking at, looking at Jesus, looking at what he was doing, could you have received him as king? Or would that part of it seemed a bit odd? Because when you read through the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, you begin to see a teaching on kingdom that is completely radical. As a Jew at the time of Jesus, you would have been believing for a promised successor to King David. Someone that would have hated the Romans and would have led a physical revolt against them. And someone that would have lent his wholehearted support to the temple systems and priests 
And you know what? Jesus did neither. This king had no regular place to sleep. Never mind any kind of amazing palace. In the end, and we know the story, don't we? The only crown he got was a crown of thorns. If you were Jewish, looking at Jesus, you'd have been shocked at the blasphemy of suggesting that an all-powerful God-anointed king lets himself die in shameful agony at the hands of unjust, secular, and religious leaders. So who is this king? And over what is he ruling? Those questions, they caused massive problems 2,000 years ago. And the fact that these questions still remain relevant to billions of people and ultimately everyone across the world today, I think is the oddest thing of all. Years before Jesus came onto the earthly scene, Israel became desperate for a king. God was reluctant to give them one. Her, even. And let's face some of these facts. Wasn't God their king? Ruling in righteousness, faithfulness, and power? How could they have wished for better when their surrounding nations were demonstrating how horrible human kings could suppress their own people? But Israel was adamant. And you know what? God gives us what we want sometimes if we plead long enough. Let me read you from Samuel, 1 Samuel. When Samuel got to be an old man, he set up his sons as judges in Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, the second Abijah. They were assigned duty in Beersheba, but his sons didn't take after him. They were out for what they could get for themselves, taking bribes, corrupting justice. Fed up, all the elders of Israel got together and confronted Samuel at Ramah. They presented their case. Look, you're an old man, and your son's out following in your footsteps. Here's what we want you to do. Appoint a king to rulers, just like everybody else. When Samuel heard their demand, give us a king to rulers, he was crushed. How awful. Samuel prayed to God. God answered Samuel, go ahead and do what they're asking. They're not rejecting you. They rejected me as their king. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. And now they're telling, you, they're, now they're doing it to you. So let them have their way. But warn them for what they're in for. Tell them the way kings operate just what they're likely to get from a king. So Samuel told them, delivering God's warning to the people who are asking him to give them a king. He said, this is the way the kind of king you're talking about operates. He'll take your sons and make soldiers of them. Charioteery, cavalry, infantry, regimented in battalions and squadrons. He'll put some to forced labor on his farms, plowing and harvesting, and others to making either weapons of war or chariots in which he can ride in luxury. He'll put your daughters to work as beauticians and waitresses and cooks. He'll conscript your best fields, vineyards, orchards, and hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests and vintage to support his extensive bureaucracy. Your prize workers and best animals he'll take for his own use. He'll lay a tax on your flocks, and you'll end up better, no better than slaves. The day will come when you will cry out in desperation because of this king you want 
so much for yourselves, but don't expect God to answer. But the people wouldn't listen to Samuel. No, they said, we have a king to rule us. Then we'll be just like all the other nations. Our king will rule us and lead us and fight our battles. And Samuel took in what they said and rehearsed it with God. And God said to Samuel, do what they say. Make them a king. Then Samuel dismissed the men of Israel. Go home, each to your own city. So Israel got what they wanted, didn't they? They got the unstable Saul. And after him, pathetically few good kings, either from God's point of view or from the people's, except for the great King David. However, even he had his major flaws, didn't he? But at least he was still a man after God's own heart. God had given a promise that David's throne would last forever and that his descendants would reign under God for all time. Psalms 89, verses 3 and 4 says, You once said, I joined forces with my chosen leader. I pledged my word to my servant David, saying, Everyone descending from you is guaranteed life. I'll make your rule as solid and as lasting as rock. Yet Israel and its kings kept rebelling against God. Hope would flicker every now and again. But for 200 years or so before Jesus came to earth, Jewish kings weren't even descended from David at all. Herod, the guy that pops up in every nativity story, wasn't even wholly Jewish. He was a warlord with power that came from cooperation with the hated Roman occupiers. And so we get to the start of Matthew's gospel. And it has angels, doesn't it? Proclaiming the Savior's supernatural arrival. And yet here is a vulnerable, apparently illegitimate baby. A refugee from the murderous authority of the counterfeit king, Herod. And despite all this, and everything that happened afterwards, including his death, Jesus never once pulled back from his belief that under God, he was king. And when we look at Jesus' life, we see how he refused the normal, normal trappings of power. Yet, his attitude towards the law came from a king's authority. He stands towards everything, from storms to the sick and downtrodden, towards scripture, foreigners, sin and Satan. Everyone reveals awesome authority, extending his kingship way beyond God's chosen people. Jesus is king of everything in this universe in the same way that God is king. Jesus remains in control to and through his death because his authority came not from the people, but from God. Daniel 2.44 says, But throughout the history of these kingdoms, the God of heaven will be building a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will this kingdom ever fall under the domination of another. In the end, it will crush all other kingdoms and finish them off and come through it standing strong and eternal. Jesus has authority in heaven 
and on earth. His rule of righteousness and love, faithfulness and peace cannot fail to last forever. You know, the, the problem with reading the Bible, especially when we decide to focus on particular books like we do with Matthew, is that it's really dangerous stuff. Because when you read it, and I mean really read it, the implications are so radical, so far-reaching, that if we were to really, if we were really able to grasp fully what the kingship of Christ means, if the whole world came under his kingship, we'd be able to affect creation itself. Can you imagine the difference? Can you imagine the difference? The whole world under his kingship. But you know what? Coming under the kingship of Christ and helping the world understand it seems massive and too incredible to contemplate. Why? Because of something that is relevant to us all. Control issues. Who, rightly or wrongly, exercises authority over you? And over whom do you have control? Think about that question. What would Jesus do in the light of these things? How far can and should it apply? Where it does, and where following Jesus would mean change, how might that change be possible? I'm going to ask you to do this, do this now, but also do this continuously. Ask God about areas where he doesn't, or rather, where you haven't let him have control in your life. Just close your eyes. might help you. And I've got it too, so I'm saying you, but I'm including me in this. Where do you not let God have control? Okay, you've probably thought about that. Just hold that in prayer now, every morning, when you wake. Whatever the situation is, give it to God. Hand it over to Him. He dealt with everything at the cross. He can deal with it right now. Let me finish with this. As much as, for those that know me, as much as I personally may not like the fact that we have a monarchy and that there is a queen who is the head of state, as much as I personally don't like that, it's fact. <laughs> and you know what? She's been there for quite a while. And over the years, she's had a number of portraits done, hasn't she? And I'm sure you've seen some of them. Some of them are a bit weird. Some of them are a bit wonderful. Some of them, well, fantastic. But you'd say, wouldn't you, that she's pretty recognizable as queen in, in every single one of them. But I put this to you, that every painter who has painted her portrait has added their flavor to that portrait. Maybe within each portrait that you look at, you see 
something else of Elizabeth's personality. And I want to say to you, it's like that with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That each one of them reveals different aspects of Jesus. You may find a Gospel uh, easier to read than another. You might find it easier to come to terms with what it's trying to tell you than that of another person. And I think that within Matthew, you can disagree, but I think that within Matthew, we find a kingly Jesus reigning through his trials, even from the cross. And we maybe see less compassion and humanity and instead more challenging authority. And you know what? That's why I think we have more than one gospel. That's why we have four. To help us get a rounded idea of the gospel message. This good news of Jesus. And as you read through Matthew, and I really want to encourage you to do that. If you've not done it for a while, get Matthew, read it, read through it, absorb it. Let it just come into every part of your being. Understand it, research it, look behind it because we're going to be working through Matthew over this next, well, including today, seven weeks. Open yourselves up to it. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, try and work out what it really means to follow King Jesus. Let me remind you of some of his roles and his titles. Shepherd, Savior, Anointed One, Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, Son of God, Son of Man, Suffering Servant, Lamb of God, Great High Priest. Think of these and more as you relate to his kingship. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. 